When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Neanderthal life, love, death and art with Rebecca Rag Sykes and her new book, Kindred. Rebecca Rag Sykes has been fascinated by the vanishing worlds of the Pleistocene Ice Ages since childhood and followed this interest through a scientific career researching the most enigmatic characters of all, the Neanderthals. Alongside her academic expertise, Rebecca has earned a reputation for exceptional public communication in print, broadcast and as a speaker. Her writing has featured in The Guardian, Aeon and Scientific American and she has appeared on history and science programmes for BBC Radio 4. She works as an archaeological and creative consultant and co-founded the Influential Trailblazers Project, highlighting women in archaeology and the earth sciences. And Rebecca is also a honorary fellow of the universities of Liverpool and Bordeaux. And today we're going to be talking about Rebecca's first book, which is Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art. Rebecca, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. I guess to begin with, take us back to the first discovery of something that would turn out to be Neanderthal. Okay, well, there's actually more than one. (laughs) Like, which first? Okay, so, so the accepted first discovery is in 1856. And this is the, um, the location in Germany, which gives us the name Neanderthal, which is Neander Valley in German. But before that, there were actually two other fossils that had been found, but not recognised as an extinct hominin. So first of all, there's one in uh, the 1830s in Belgium, which was actually the the top of the skull of a child from a cave. And it was beneath um, flowstone and mixed in with extinct animals. But because it was a child, Neanderthals, just like us, don't really sort of grow into their into their adult form until later. So it wasn't clear that this was really quite different looking. And the other one was from Gibraltar, which was found in 1848. And it was deemed interesting because it was presented to the Scientific Society on Gibraltar and kept in their collections, but it was not understood or sort of recognised to be anything other than a, than a human until after the German find that 
fossil, the Gibraltar one, came over in the early 1860s to Britain. Um, so really the, the sort of ground zero is the 1856 discovery in Germany. But that was a chance find, as the others were, really. Um, it was quarry workers who were clearing out a cave in advance of mining operations in the Dussel Valley. And amongst lots of bones of different animals and sort of sticky clay, they were throwing this material out that wasn't what they wanted. And I think it's the quarry foreman noticed something interesting that they were sort of finding bare bones and things, but these pieces looked different. And he contacted the person who ran the local sort of natural history society, who was a school teacher. And from that point on, it kind of ballooned and sort of went up the sort of intellectual food chain until it got to anatomist in Bonn. And then it was presented to the German scientific societies, but it didn't really reach the Anglophone scientific world until 1861, when a translation of the German papers was done by George Busk, who is actually a really central figure to the intellectual world in the, in the mid-19th century. He sort of had fingers in many different scientific pies. Um, the Linnaean Society, so biological stuff and ethnography, he was interested in all of that. And he translated this paper into English and added his own sort of analysis and compared it to chimpanzee skulls and things. And that's when it, things really began to blow up. But in terms of the nature of what was found... The Belgian find in the 1830s was just the top of this kid's skull. The Gibraltar find was actually a whole skull, but it was quite encased in sort of cemented deposits, so it wasn't really clear. Whereas the German find was the top of an adult skull with the brow ridges, but also other parts of the body, so arms and legs and other bits, which together were quite clearly not like a normal-looking human skeleton. They were very robust so thick heavy and it was this that really led to their recognition as something that was sort of an ancient by the condition of the bones um some kind of ancient sort of human ish and this is you know sort of the mid 19th century this is like quite a feeble time for science obviously we've started to discover dinosaur fossils for instance and obviously you know this is around the period around the time when you know wallace and darwin are, are started sort of beaver away we get towards ideas of of evolution but another possible hominid species what does this mean for the sort of scientific community at that time well, it's kind of interesting because fossils and the notion of extinct worlds and extinct animals had really been getting more cemented and accepted from the late 1800s. And, you know, people like Mary Anning, you know, were busy finding vast beasts that had once swum in oceans and things like this. But sort of the more recent geological history was less clear. And for a lot of people, human history went back to the Romans and then the Celts and then it got a bit fuzzy. And they didn't really have much concept of vastly ancient depth to, to humanity itself. There had been a discovery of fossil primates in Europe uh, already by the, I think, the 1830s. So the seeds of it were there. And as you say, you know, Darwin and Wallace were already sort of pursuing these ideas about change over long periods. But the Neanderthals, as a representative of the first hominin that we encountered it was still a bit of a bomb really that went off for people and i think i think it was quite shocking for many people who were sort of within that scientific community it was fascinating to them there is a record um, in a letter that darwin was shown the gibraltar skull and sort of 
uh, is said to have thought it wonderful, you know, as in wonderment to see this object. But he never really wrote anything about it. So we don't know what he thought in his own words about about what it meant. And it's quite clear that people were struggling to argue, is this a pathological individual from Germany? You know, are the legs very thick and, and sort of slightly bowed because this was a hefty Russian soldier who had been riding horses a lot and sort of, you know, they, they were coming up with pathological ideas. And then there was other people who were quite prescient, really. Thomas Huxley was, was quite adamant that this was not a missing link between apes and us. It was clearly much closer to living humans than to a chimpanzee. So right from the beginning, they were really sort of beginning to wrestle with exactly what this meant. Subsequently, sites, archaeological sites of Neanderthals have been found in, in lots of places. Let's talk about what we think now their range was. Well, one of the things that has changed rather a lot is that for a long time, people used to think that the the Neanderthals were essentially a European species. And that really began to sort of shift a little bit in the 1930s when finds from the Near East started to emerge. But now the range, the geographic range that we can see, it goes way into Asia, you know, Uzbekistan and across into Siberia. So they definitely, they are a Eurasian species. And if you look just at the, the miles covered, they're more Asian than they are European because Europe is pretty small. So that's interesting. And we do not know the eastern extent of where they ended up or where they explored because the finds that we have are obviously just potluck finds. Um, so it's quite possible that the current range may well expand further east and who, who knows how far. So that's that's an interesting future question. But in terms of chronology, the dates now that we understand Neanderthals to be sort of emerging around, in genetic terms, it looks like they were beginning to be distinct from about 400,000 years onwards, somewhere roughly like that. And anatomically, we can sort of really see them um, between 400 and 350,000 years. And they go on until pretty much everywhere we can see, they do not appear to persist anywhere beyond 40,000 years ago. And they may have disappeared slightly before that, sort of between 42 to 40,000 years ago. So we're talking 400,000 years ago to about roughly 40,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. give or take, which is, I mean, it's an unimaginably large span of time that these, you know, the Neanderthal society existed. We often, and again, another cliche, we often think about them or, you know, was originally thought was that they were, like you said, a European and more specifically a sort of like Northern European cold weather species. We think of them surviving ice ages. But obviously, during that enormous span of time, the climate fluctuated a lot, didn't it? So the key thing really is that there was not just one ice age. There were many cycles of drastic climate change really we today we're in stage one which is an interglacial so it's warm and we don't have expanded ice caps and massive glaciers but if you go back through the period of time when the neanderthals were around to when they first emerge you get back to stage 11 so although some of those stages are shorter and longer than each other basically odd numbers are warm even numbers are cold so you're looking at multiple cold and warm phases sort of a a bit of a roller coaster going up and down so although they certainly did cope with cold conditions they don't seem really to have liked 
extreme frigid climates. You know, when we see species like Arctic fox and musk oxen appearing, real deep snow polar specialists, the Neanderthals are not really about. They're okay with steppe tundra when it's quite cold, but not sort of drastic and, and completely barren. They like grasslands, um, sort of tundra grasslands, a bit like Siberia today, really. Um, where you do have very harsh winters, but the summers are not too cold compared to what we have in the UK. And climate too was also more continental during the cold phases, which means that sea levels fell as the ice in the ice caps and glaciers grew. And that basically expanded the size of the continent somewhat and made conditions in the interior more arid as well as cold. But during the interglacials, it could actually be warmer than right now. The The warmest period that they survived was called the Eemian about 120,000 years ago. And we saw forests really expanding across uh, across Europe um, in, in Asia and you know we have species that today are regarded more as tropical species like hippos um, right up in Yorkshire you know so they were living in environments then that would have been really quite lush compared to the, the traditional views that you might see them striding through in reconstructions and things like this. When we get to the second half, we're gonna we're gonna look more particularly at some areas of Neanderthal life. In more general terms, our attitude to them and our ideas about them have obviously evolved over the time since they were first discovered. And at the same time, of course, what I'd like to talk about is archaeological methodology. How does the methods that archaeologists use now to find and study um, Neanderthal remains, how have they changed over the years? Well, I mean, they're, they're just light years away from what the early prehistorians had to deal with. Um, back in the, the late Victorian period, you had essentially sites being dug very rapidly. They would clear out a cave, you know, within a couple of weeks, they might put, do a bit of dynamite blasting if it wasn't going fast enough. And they were very keen on collecting objects before sort of the shape. So with stone tools, for example, they were interested to try and look at how shape changed over time, but they were not really interested to see how those objects were made. So what we would think of as the technology today, which meant that they just chucked out a lot of the tiny bits of stone, which today we know is actually extremely informative in terms of showing how Neanderthals had quite varied technology, stone tool technologies, how they made choices, um, things like this. And the same with animal bones. They were interested in all these different species that lived alongside Neanderthals. They recognised cut marks on bones as evidence of butchery, but they didn't really understand that the way things get into caves can be pretty complicated. So, for example, hyenas might be sharing that cave, but at different times to Neanderthals and you need to be able to disentangle which bones were hunted by Neanderthals and which bones were hunted by other predators and today we have like an enormous range of techniques and and, and methods for doing that but primarily you've got to understand in the first place but you can't just assume that all the bones in the site are 
Neanderthal detritus. And so this this sort of understanding of the formation of archaeological sites as really crucial to our interpretation, um, that really only emerged sort of from the mid 20th century onwards. And it's, it's called taphonomy and this sort of this historical understanding of sites as having their own histories of formation has really underpinned a lot of the methods that developed into 21st century archaeology, where we essentially collect as much as we possibly can and we can refit objects together, um, we can spatially reconstruct entire layers in 3D because we've used lasers as we dig to actually plot those objects into a massive database with their coordinates and that allows us to see if there's been any disturbance in a site and also to pick out things like spatial patterning around hearths. If we were only focusing on the the big sort of sexy looking tools, we would not see all this masses of, of information and detail, which actually shows us the more subtle things like the, the cognitive choices made in, in how they made objects, um, how they dealt with bad stone, for example, if you refit a core back together because you've collected all those tiny pieces you can literally almost watch a neanderthal's thought process as it sort of dealt with this lump of rock and, and the different choices they made where they decided to to change where they were napping and things and similarly you can track the movements across site you know are two halves in use at the same time well you assess that by looking for physical refits of objects between those so it's that understanding of sites and then of course you've got all the sort of the whizzy lab archaeological science stuff like genetics or chemical analysis of bones for diet um, also you can do mobility by looking at bone chemistry there's just a huge range of stuff the things that we can see in terms of the scale of the materials we now analyse, as well as the range, it would just be beyond the dreams of people 160 years ago when they were first understanding what Neanderthals were. If we see a, a reconstruction of a Neanderthal, you know whether or not that's a one that was done a, a hundred years ago and makes them look like a, a stereotypical caveman, or a more modern reconstruction, as there are some in this book. We can note that there are obvious physiological differences between Neanderthal and, and Homo sapiens, you know, at least the shape of their skull, but also the general size and stockiness of their bodies. What was the significance of their body shape to their ongoing survival? Well, I mean, their bodies are fundamental to how they lived every day, just like ours are. But the understanding of, of Neanderthal's bodies and how they've been represented has obviously really changed over time. And initially, there were some sort of tendencies to, to make them look really quite apish, you know, and sort of pretty bent over. And, and there is a reconstruction from 1910, uh, or is it 99? I can't remember. But um, it from uh, a French reconstruction and it, it just the anatomist who was involved in that was a very skilled anatomist and, and had looked at multiple Neanderthal bodies but somehow the reconstruction that came out of his work with it with an artist um, still managed to sort of have this apish foot with you know like a prehensile toe just like a chimpanzee so there's a desire in reconstructions that we have to remember that what we're trying to reveal in our reconstructions has changed but also our understanding of biomechanics, for example, you know, how bodies grow, how they develop, how they actually work as a system has really 
really transformed. We can look at the cellular level, for example, as to the fact that Neanderthals faces, which if you want to use a sort of a coarse way to describe it, they were a bit more muzzly than us, um, sort of the front part of their faces, their noses and um, their jaw sort of was pulled outwards a bit. And if we look at the bone, there's loads and loads of bone growth cells in there, whereas we like to think that we are the default, but actually our face has loads of bone absorption cells. So, you know, in some ways we are just as weird and derived from our common ancestor as Neanderthals. It's not like they've gone off and, and been weird and primitive and all of this. Their own anatomical root was as distinct as ours. But in terms of the broad understanding of, of their bodies, I think one of the key shifts has been that... Although there is definite evidence that some aspects of their body was to do with thermoregulation, so essentially um, coping with, with colder conditions, the tendency to really try and explain everything as like an Ice Age adaptation, that's not really where researchers are going these days. It's looking more like things are a bit more complex than that um, as you would expect because they as I said earlier they, they were not that keen on super cold environments um, so for example the large chest that they had big lung capacity that may well have been more to do with a very intensive hunter-gatherer lifestyle or at least as important and similarly they had really large noses very clear sort of massive nasal aperture on their skulls that you can see um, and people have suggested oh perhaps that was to sort of condition all this cold air before it went into them and make it less harsh on the lungs but in fact it doesn't really look like that it looks more like perhaps that is actually just another way to get a load of oxygen into their bodies because their bodies were although they were shorter they sort of had more massive bodies and we believe that their calorific need you know what what the fuel that they needed to just live was greater than our own bodies and then if you add very intensive hunter-gatherer lifestyles into that then sort of it, it boosts up further so it could be anywhere from five to seven thousand calories a day depending on the kind of climate they were in and the sort of activity that they were doing but you know that's that's a huge amount and even if you get all those calories you need oxygen to to burn them and for your body to make use of them so it all starts to kind of tie together that certainly there would have been adaptations that were useful to them during cold periods but perhaps it's it's much more of a sort of a tangled a tangled weave of different influences happening at different points and um, you know maybe they, they were honed during the ice ages but it wasn't so important to them during interglacials and they may have had a problem with overheating potentially even during periods when it was especially warm but I think what really is emerging is that they weren't less physically capable than us that you know in some ways they probably weren't so good at long distance running as us but their just general walking efficiency would probably have just been marginally marginally less efficient than ours no drastic difference there they may have had a gait that was slightly different but their body sort of adjusted itself so that they were still completely fully bipedal just like we are walking around on two legs they probably were quite fast at sprinting and it looks like they may have been even more sure-footed on sort of very rough ground than us one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. City Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rebecca Rag Sykes. We're talking about her book Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death and Art. And Rebecca, I said as we went into the second half, I wanted to look at some aspects of daily Neanderthal life. Um, we'll talk about, I guess, what we think now. Obviously, as always, you know, these scientific findings can change with a new site, a new discovery. Um, but where we are now stone tools what archaeologists call lithics let's talk about what we know how neanderthals used stone i think their understanding of stone and sort of its material properties and potential is one of the things that doesn't really hit the headlines with neanderthals you know you do hear about sort of big discoveries and things like this but it's one of the areas where our understanding of them has really changed um, even over the past three decades, never mind longer than that. But it doesn't sort of it doesn't do well in mass media because it's quite complicated. And I have tried in the book to sort of explain the complexity of what we understand now without overwhelming people um, because there is a lot of specialists, you know, jargon and things. But essentially what we see in how Neanderthals used stone and how they made um, tools is echoed across different realms of their lives. They were interested in quality 
essentially. So they did not just go around and pick up any old bit of rock. They knew good rock when they saw it, and they would preferentially choose good rock if they could get it. But they could still cope with rock that wasn't great. And um, for example, like quartzites. When I say good rock, I mean something that has a homogeneous, fine, crypto-crystalline structure. So flint, jasper obsidian although obsidian is not very common and then you have sort of more granular types of rock like uh, quartzites for example they could nap perfectly well with poorer quality rock but they would not choose to move that rock around to different sites whereas we can see quite clearly that where there were sources of good quality rock those tools were moving further around the landscape so they were prioritizing tools and choosing tools even more importantly to be resharpened and held on to for longer if they were made of better quality rock so this concern for quality and efficiency um, is really emerges Um, very early on with them and and it sort of becomes more and more clear as we go through time but also the evidence that we have for their selectivity in how they were actually napping is really really far beyond what we used to understand so we can see that there were many different ways of going about taking your rock apart and always no matter which way they did it they were always aiming for particular kinds of products so they didn't sort of sit down with with their flint um, nodule and just sort of bash it about. They definitely had end products in mind that they wished to get out of that core. And they could use particular methods where they might shape and prepare the surface of the core in a way that then allowed them to get predictable, nicely shaped flakes off it, which were quite large and easy to resharpen and carry around the landscape. And that's one way of doing things. In other places and times, they would take the rock apart in quite a different way. They wouldn't sort of prepare and shape it beforehand. They would start straight away. But with such skill and understanding of of the rock and, and the angles that you need to work at, that pretty much every removal, every flake that came off that core set up the position where you struck the next one. And it was extremely efficient. It's almost production line. Um, It's a completely different way of doing it, but just as sophisticated as the other methods where you prepare the cores first. And the variety of different products, we call them, so that could be flakes or it could be blades, which are basically flakes that are twice as long as they are broad, um, so elongated looking things. Um, You can get uh, triangular shaped points depending on how you prepare the surface of your core or where you strike it. There's a whole range of different kinds of of flakes that they were able to produce. And even more telling is that we can see them shifting techniques on the same core, for example, as it gets smaller and the angles at which you can actually hit it start to not really work. They would shift the method that they were using and get themselves different kinds of products. So they were really flexible from the level of one core to when you look across a landscape and they clearly have a geological understanding of the rocks that are available in the land that they knew. So I think this scale of understanding of the organisation and the, the interest in material quality is is really fascinating and that's quite a big change to how we used to think of tools mostly as to what did they look like were they trying to create particular shape tools it doesn't seem that they're that interested in the prettiness of their tools but they were absolutely focused on the functionality 
that idea when you say you, you can understand through the archaeological record the ideas of planning you can see that you know they must have been able to know where they would be there is obviously metaphysical ideas that that we can't see in the fossil record things that you know we know that homo sapiens were able to do which gave us an advantage communicate with each other have some sort of ideas of forward planning to be able to put you know put ourselves into the mind of another person where are we now in terms of thinking with these ideas around neanderthals I don't think it's as black and white as it used to be. I think if you look at the totality of, of the evidence for how they organised themselves and how they lived, you've got the stone tool evidence I was just talking about, but also you can look at how they were absolutely systematic in, in their, uh, not just hunting, but the butchery of their animals. So they would take apart a carcass and be completely focused on the richest parts of that body, um, you know, not just the flesh, but the the fat and the bones with the most marrow. And you can see the patterning changing depending on the size of the animal. So, you know, they are really into the efficiency and and the economics of what they're up to. And then you also can see that those in general sites where we, where they're kill sites, basically, where you've got carcasses of animals that have been butchered very soon after they were killed. They were not sort of doing that in a single stage. What we see time and again is that those Neanderthals that were there doing the initial butchering were then taking the best parts away, sometimes two stages onwards, presumably to others who were waiting. So the entire sort of organisation of of what they were doing, there was no sort of scrum around the carcass. It was very methodical, systematic, skilled work. It's all about sharing the resources with the rest of the group and this happening throughout the landscape. They expanded the scale at which they were active. And that does imply some level of planning and of keeping in mind where different things are in the landscape. And we can even see that in individual objects. So one of the things Neanderthals did quite early on, uh, sort of around probably 270,000 at least, was learning how to do composite technology, which basically just means you have a stone uh, flake or a blade and then you stick a handle on it. It might have just one other part or it might have a stone thing and an adhesive and a handle. That implies a mental ability to know that parts can be joined together, which is actually quite significant in itself and may have implications to do with the sophistication of communication to this concept of joining different things together. But if you have stone flakes that have been sourced and made in one place, you have a wooden handle sourced and made probably in in many cases somewhere else. And then you have an adhesive, which for the most part looked to be quite complex, including birch tar that you have to cook out of the bark or pine resin mixed with beeswax. You suddenly have in these single hafted composite tools, you have references to the entire landscape to multiple kinds of technology and a material project that is, you cannot get to that point by chance without some kind of planning so you know whether we look at the micro scale of of tools like this or we look at exactly how they were moving and staging their activity through the landscape i think there's abundant evidence that there was some kind of ability to plan in advance at least for days if not weeks and then there are sites as well where 
it looks like there was potentially some seasonality in when they were arriving, perhaps timing it to coincide with when herds would be appearing, for example. So that's a lot harder to see, but there is definite hints of it. And so that might suggest that there was a very broad movement and dynamic through the landscape on the scale of a whole year. So I think certainly in that sense, they were not necessarily vastly different. And you said earlier that they didn't necessarily care if their tools were were pretty, but it does look like they might have cared if some things were pretty. You talk about more abstract ideas like art, for instance... Um, artifacts that have been found and particularly I wanted you to mention there's a, the, this amazing stalagmite ring that was found mm-hmm. in France yeah I mean with, with the tools it's interesting because most of the time it looks like it's just about the functionality and sort of the ergonomics is what they're really interested in there are some kinds of objects called hand axes where it's arguable in some cases that they were interested in producing objects that were symmetric or at least started out symmetric and then they would sometimes resharpen them on one side more and it would become sort of asymmetric so these are objects that you would probably have seen pictures of because they're very iconic they're sort of two-sided things that you you know triangular-ish shaped objects quite large and with some of those there might be something going on with the form but in terms of other kinds of aesthetics it does look today like there is much more of an interest in mineral pigments than we used to believe it has been known for for a good while that there were some pigments found in neanderthal sites quite often black but sometimes red and orange pigments so just natural minerals but better analysis of old collections and also really examining particular objects in detail does suggest that Neanderthals in particular times and places were interested in black pigment and in some places they collected quite large amounts of this. One in particular, manganese, has been suggested that perhaps it was a functional use because it turns out that you can actually use it sort of like a fire lighter, like a chemical accelerant to help your fire get going. But on the other hand, um, if we look at the sort of the little fragments of, of manganese in some places, we can see that they weren't being ground for powder. Some of them were being rubbed on surfaces that were soft, for example, like an animal hide or, you know, a person's skin. We don't know which, but it doesn't match the idea just of producing powder to sort of help your fire lighting. So there does seem to be more than practicality in some circumstances in terms of the fire lighting, but problem with pigments in general is that there are actually loads of different um, uses for pigments that are not paint. We have to be, you know, very careful with what we argue and essentially we have to rule out functional uses although that's not to say you can't have something that's functional and also has other meanings at the same time but cases where we can sort of see that there isn't really any functional explanation are like a little window that we can then look out of onto the rest of what Neanderthals are doing and say okay well maybe there is more going on here and one object that's really good for that is a tiny little shell from an Italian site called Crotofumane, and that 
It's aged around, uh, dated around 50,000 years ago. And it's interesting because in, in various places, Neanderthals did sort of forage around coasts and they did have shellfish to eat. But this is nothing to do with food. This is actually a fossil shell that had been sourced potentially up to 100 kilometers away. So a Neanderthal must have come across a geological formation with fossils in it and presumably been intrigued by what that was collected at least one fossil maybe from a river um not necessarily the the original formation but still a substantial distance from where it was found um in the archaeological site which is interesting already but then when examined at a microscopic level this fossil shell also has red pigment on it um, sort of preserved in tiny little pits on the outside of the shell it's not inside the shell and what's more that mineral pigment is nothing to do with like the local sediments inside the cave that had to have been sourced from about 40 kilometers away so straight away you've got two unusual things that are united in the same object and it's extremely difficult to come up with any practical purpose for the creation of of that object of, of the shell and the pigment on it and also we have to remember Neanderthals, you know, they were very mobile people from what we can tell. They didn't really stay anywhere more than probably a few weeks at most. They had to carry everything. So even though it's a tiny little fossil shell, it took someone to decide that they wanted to carry that on with them, presumably from, from more than one place. We don't know where that came from originally, how many sites that had been carried through. But that was a decision. It was obviously important to whoever moved it. And there's many different ideas you could come up with for what it was really about. But that one object then allows us to look out at other things that were going on, like other cases of pigment use, for example, or cases where we can see shells that were to do with food, but which do have pigment on them. And in one case, pigment that seems to be comprised of a recipe of, of two different kinds of two different colours from different sources with the addition of iron pyrite, which would have been sparkly. So we have to have these like individual touchstones when we talk about Neanderthal potential for symbolic behaviour and then use those to reinterpret what we see going on elsewhere that might be less clear. And so another example is the use of birds. And this is something that's been in the headlines quite a lot. And you see sort of some recent reconstruction art with Neanderthals, like with feather capes and, you know, feathers stuck in their hair and talon necklaces and all this. That goes a little bit beyond what we can say archaeologically. But what we can definitely say is Neanderthals were eating a lot more small game than we used to think they did. It wasn't the main part of their diet usually, but hunting birds is something that they did. It looks in some cases that they were interested in the wings of birds some sites seem to show that there are sort of patterns with the cut marks that suggest that they were actually trying to skin the wings whole to preserve presumably the flight feathers so it's not about kind of getting fluff and, and down for thermal use they were they were after the primary feathers you can't really use those for spears it doesn't work experimentally so they wanted them for something else we don't know what the other thing that they're interested in is birds' feet. And there are a number of sites where we can see that they were butchering the feet of various birds, actually, but also very large raptors, so big birds of prey like eagles or vultures. And again, there is a potential practical explanation for that because in uh, raptors' feet, you've got massive tendons, and tendons can actually be super useful as a material. But uh, archaeologists have been quite quite clever 
And they've done experiments basically showing if you want to get the tendon out, you have to cut in a particular place through the bird's toes. Otherwise, you just slice the tendon and it's it's not so useful. So they then went back and looked at the archaeological collections. In some places, it does look like they were trying to preserve the tendon. But in other places, they're not. It looks like what they're really after is the talons. And so, you know, there's been lots of speculation with, is this jewellery? It doesn't, to me seem like you would go to all that effort because you want something that's a bit pointy and pokey because you could do that with a splinter of of rock you could nap it in two seconds so they are interested in the talents but what it's about is less clear the one place most of the time these objects are single they're found in one or two in a whole site or a couple in one layer but not associated with each other so we don't you know it's, it's really hard to be sure but in a croatian site called Krapina, there's many of them that site unfortunately was dug at the end of the 19th century and obviously we're lacking a lot of spatial information we don't know if those objects were ever actually associated with each other originally they could have been spread through this this entire layer but when those objects were analyzed relatively recently the researchers found interesting micro polishes on parts of the talent as if they had been rubbing against something hard and it was proposed that perhaps as these weren't necklaces and you know there was a really beautiful image of them all sort of next to each other laid out like a necklace there was no direct evidence for that unlike in an early homo sapiens site in south africa where there were a load of shells that were dug up they were very close together in the site and really cool experimental work was done looking at um, the micro polishes on those shells and how you could actually make that happen by stringing together modern shells and then you look at the pattern and it matches and that does look like it they were strung together but this croatian site that neanderthals were living at it wasn't really sure what was going on with those talons but then very recently new work was done which has identified pigment on one of those and again it's a mix it's not just sort of one kind of pigment that got smeared it's a it's a pigment mix that is on a very unusual object so again it's that combination of two things together which sort of makes you go okay yeah there is something going on here we can't tell what it was but there is an interest in uh, this class of objects and in combining it with pigment which presumably is a visual thing an aesthetic thing one of the most weird (laughs) recent discoveries which i think for a lot of people does fit into the no possible functional explanation that we can see is the french sites of uh, bruniquel and this is a cave where about 300 meters into into a hillside there is a chamber where cavers i think found originally some large rings formed of snapped stalagmites pushed together into rings with sort of piles inside them. And when that was dated originally, they used radiocarbon, which you can't use on materials older than 50,000 years ago, and it came out as older than 40,000. So it was clearly not something recent. Um, But when that site was subject to, you know, full-on analysis and study and a different dating method was used, which actually measures the date at which the stalagmites were broken and burned because uh, there's burning on them as well. That came out way older, about 174,000 years ago. And as far as we know, there's nobody else in Western Europe at that time apart from Neanderthals. And not only is the age really impressive, but actually when they went in depth and looked at the formation of these rings, they're big. 
they are there's two rings and they've got a large circumference you know um if you look at pictures of it you can see most of uh, the pictures on Google show like uh, one person standing near them and you can see the rings are massive compared to that person. And it would have taken hours and hours and hours to snap all of the stalactites and arrange them. But more than that, they're selecting them for the size. So again, there's that interest in material quality. And you look at how the rings themselves are formed and it's almost architectural. So you have some parts which sort of look like they have been just sort of shoved together but in other parts there are vertical ones stacked up along the edge of the ring and then inside the rings themselves in some sections you can see sort of three or even four components balanced on top of each other almost like you know like a column and a lintel and then another column on top of it inside um, it's not quite as formal as that but the stacking is really obvious and there is something going on there that is more about construction you know it's not kind of just oh let's let's create a, a ring and just sort of mess all these bits of broken stuff up they selected the pieces and they carefully constructed it and then there is burning along the tops of the rings and on some of the piles of stalagmites inside the rings it's completely bizarre we don't know what that is about frustratingly there is a a flowstone sort of deposit all over the floor and we can't see if there's any archaeological materials under that like stone tools or anything it does look from magnetic analysis that there may be more hearths below that but we're not sure exactly what's under there. So it doesn't make sense as a living site. It's too far inside this cave. It would have been completely black. They would have needed permanent illumination, which, you know, is extremely costly in terms of fuel. And it doesn't make sense as a living structure either. So we don't know what it is. It has been sort of called in headlines, oh, you know, Neanderthal Stonehenge, which is obviously hyperbole. But then you look at the detail of the construction inside some parts of the ring and it's not that far off in, ter in terms of basic concepts of putting things together and balancing and stuff so it's completely strange and at the moment there's nothing like that nobody made anything like that for I would say probably until 10,000 years ago it's completely anomalous but it does suggest that Neanderthals are interested in stuff other than just hunting and going to sleep and making babies and eating you know there's something else going on that backs up what we can see in the other kinds of objects where there seems to be an interest in aesthetic qualities and in making marks as well i haven't said that there are some quite clear cases now of very distinctive very evenly spaced mark making on bones which is not explicable through butchery we know that around 40,000 years ago, the Neanderthals started to disappear from history. One way in which that happened is is that we know now that they definitely interbred with, with our own ancestors. But what else? What now are the sort of most likely reasons, do we think, for them disappearing? It's still a really open question, to be honest. Some things we can probably rule out, for example, it doesn't look like there was any massive conflict. You know, we're not talking about warring tribes or anything like that, we, or at least we can't see any evidence for that. It doesn't look like, from all the evidence we have overall, that Neanderthals were more violent necessarily than early homo sapiens or more prone to to that kind of, of violence or suspicion of outsiders or anything there's no real evidence for that there's no sort of 
beaten up bodies around 40,000 years ago. It doesn't really look like, you know, there's a strong signal for that. There are a few injured Neanderthals late, but there are early as well. And much later, early Homo sapiens were also quite battered around. So I don't think there's a clear case that there was massive conflict. And certainly, as you say, we can see that in some times and places, interbreeding was part of what was going on when contact between their populations and early Homo sapiens populations happened. We don't know the mechanics of that. You know, I mean, we know the mechanics, but we don't know why the interbreeding was happening. We don't know if it was coercive or if it was happy, (laughs) Um, happy times in the tundra. But what's, I think, interesting is to think about the product of that, which is hybrid babies. Whichever group the hybrid infants were born into, and it doesn't look like there's any sort of massive mixing of groups or groups sort of amalgamating with each other. So it does seem that they must have gone into one population or the other. Whichever group they were born into, they would have had to be able to adjust physically and mentally and become part of that culture enough that they could then have their own children and their children have children. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the DNA in us today. So at a really basic level, that must speak to some kind of broad cognitive compatibility, I would say, in terms of cultural sort of ability to adapt and things. That's not to say that what happened in France was the same as what was going on in Siberia. Um, We have to remember that the, the range that they lived at, even between 50 and 40,000 years ago is potentially still quite big. And so different processes and different situations would have been happening. But in terms of what might have been difficult for them, the climate context is one of the obvious things to look at. And it doesn't look like it was drastically cold around 40,000 years or between 45 and, and 40. It was getting colder for sure, but it wasn't a full-on deep glacial period, you know, full-on ice age, it wasn't. And it really only starts to get quite intensely cold after we see them, you know, the next few thousand years. So not necessarily about extreme cold, but what the last climatic period um, during which they were living between 60,000 and 40,000, it is marked by increasing instability and sort of some periods of time when it it wasn't that harsh um, and then it would get quite cold quite fast or it would warm up very rapidly and the the level of detail we can see from climate records is such that we can be pretty sure that sometimes really quite drastic changes were happening over the scale of a person's lifetime or even faster and for hunter-gatherers environmental fluctuation and unpredictability is really bad news if we see as as i said in all the different aspects of what they were up to we can see neanderthals were completely in tune with their environment with the animals around them and they may have been scheduling where they were going to go seasonally potentially if the herds do not appear when you're expecting them to (laughs) you're in big trouble so that might have been going on they had lived through periods that were as changeable and and unstable as that but as far as we know there was nobody else around and so they may have had more sort of flexibility and space to spread out or move to different areas and perhaps the difference is that something around 45 to 40,000 years ago meant that there was more pressure from early homo sapiens pushing into the core regions where neanderthals had been living that was different it should be said though that 
we now know that early Homo sapiens people were not just dispersing from Africa at this late point 40,000 years ago. We've got very good evidence now that they were at least in the Near East area, so sort of like um, Palestine, Israel, possibly as early as 180,000 years ago. Certainly they were in Australia by 65,000 years ago. That implies a significant period before that when they were trekking all the way through Asia. And there are fossils in China, 80,000, maybe um, even older, maybe up to 120,000 years ago. So the chronology for our species dispersing out of Africa has gone way back. And it means that there are, we can also see that there was interbreeding happening very periodically through that uh, span of time. But what's interesting is that as far as we can see, nowhere through that span of time do early Homo sapiens people really get into Europe. That only happens very late at 40,000. So the question is, why did Neanderthals keep us out of Europe? Because they were actually really successful until that point at which the climate became very unstable and perhaps that tipped them over. You know, you can come up with a lot of different theories, but something different was happening. It may have been multiple factors, you know, a perfect storm that really pushed them over the edge. But also the timescales that we're looking at, even when we're talking all oh, 40,000, you know, it wasn't just like one moment in time. And it can come down to something as minor and unnoticed at a daily scale of how often your group has a baby. You know, if that builds up over 2000 years, it can mean a group vanishing or not without any sort of dramatic occurrence. So I think the answer is that something definitely changed in the dynamics in Pleistocene Eurasia um, in terms of populations and what they were doing. We don't know if that's if that's because early those those Homo sapiens groups at that point had evolved perhaps a different kind of hunting technology. Maybe it's possible that they brought with them projectile weapons, as in not thrown spears, but spears being thrown using spear throwers, which extend your range significantly, or darts or even bow and arrows it's possible but there's a lot of work to be done still really on 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 untangling exactly what's going on with the technologies of the early homo sapiens groups that we see within eurasia between 50 and 40,000 years ago so i've been talking to rebecca rag sykes we've been talking about her book kindred neanderthal life love death and art which is out now from Bloomsbury. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much. I, I love talking about it. And, you know, it's it's really nice to share the amazing stuff that archaeologists have come up with that people may not have heard about. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.